Hello, Jeff. Oh, hello, Paul. <laughs> Tim Hill, as we were recording there. Sorry. Yeah, we're on. Afternoon. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. You're very good. good. Well, um, Happy New Year. We should say Happy New Year. It is now 2017. Here's to uh, another fantastic year. Many more, many more podcasts. Yes. And pints. Cheers. Cheers. What are we What are we drinking today? Um, I forgot the Cornish orchards. Cornish orchards, yeah. Cornish orchards cider, but it's in a proper glass as well. And Dula. How, how does that rate amongst your ciders? How would you describe that to our listeners? It's like all cider, really, for me. It's <laughs> not, standard. Not a particularly connoisseur uh, uh, palate. It's sweet. I, I like it's sweet, sweet cider, which is nice. But a sweet tooth. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm staying seasonal. Um, I've got a Jack Frost, a pint of Jack Frost, which is described as a winter warming ale. There you are. It's a bit uh, chilly it's, outside today. Sort of reddish brown in colour, so a very dark it's looking dark. ale. And taste wise? There's a little bit of. So there's a little bit of berries in there, maybe winter berries. Not not massively, so just a hint. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, it says winter warming. It's it's quite chilly for a winter warming ale, but I guess after two, then you're going to warm yourself up. Because I thought I thought <laughs> beer was supposed to be traditionally is served room, room temperature. temperature, isn't it? Yeah. So I think this is perhaps a little colder than it should be, but maybe yeah. that's because it's quite cold outside. Did so you have any uh, mold cider or mold wine over the yeah. over the Christmas period? Yeah, a bit. Yeah. Quite yeah. like um, making like my own little non-alcoholic. They, they, they do non-alcoholic sort of mold Robina. Oh, nice. Well. That's, that's quite nice. nice. The kids kids quite like that. Yeah. I, nice. <laughs> anyway. So here we are. Here we are. We're, 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 we need to explain where we are. We're in yes. a pub in. St Paul's in London. This is, this is our first podcast in yeah, London? This is the first London-based podcast. Yeah. Um, and so we're in the St Paul's area, not far from our old stomping ground BT Centre. Um, and this is a pub called The Viaduct, which has got a bit of history to it. Go on, pray tell. Well, it's, um, it's the, the, the last standing Victorian gin palace. So it's 150 years old, I think. What's a gin palace? Well, when gin was the, the drink of the masses, the, 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 the sort of the, the most popular, it's quite cheap right. way of getting drunk. So um, there wouldn't be any beer in here? Just oh people. no, there probably would be beer as well, but you know, a lot of, be, it's easier to to get and to make and to buy yeah. gin. Right. Um, so they have lots of different types of gin, I imagine, and they do now. Um, and it's also built on top of uh, Newgate Prison, which is where a lot of people were held before they were executed. So the, the oh, last nice. woman to be hanged here was was held here, because, and there are still five cells underneath really? the bar. Yeah. That's so we better behave ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. We'd be in trouble. It's, it's quite it's quite busy here today. It's quite as you can probably hear a little bit of uh, background noise. Well, there's a lot of a lot of businesses around here. I, think, I imagine this is quite popular. Yeah, drinking lunch pub, isn't it? Lunchtime pub. It's very much looks like a drinkers pub to me. Um, I don't know if they do food, but um, it's, it's, it largely seems to be. They still do gin now. Oh yeah, we'll be having one of those. We'll probably have to have a gin, some kind of gin. They've got some kind of specialities, haven't they? Here, some, some they, they've named some some gin and tonics after some of their famous inmates. Yeah, which we'll have to try. Anyway, enough of the intros. Enough of the alcohol. Down to well, no, not enough of that. But <laughs> uh, get down to business, I suppose. Yes. And uh, I thought this time. Uh, 
Tell me, you don't have to do this, I suppose, but I, I, I've been messaged by somebody on Twitter about something that they'd like us to talk about. Go on, I'm listening, I'm all ears. So it's from, from Robin, Agile Robin, Robin Hackshall, uh, up in Leeds. Yeah. And uh, he said, are you able to discuss techniques or coaching methods for use by Scrum Masters or Agile Coaches in organisations who have an opinion that scope can be fixed and that a release plan is the plan and cannot be wrong? Uh, my initial instinct to that was that sounds like a three-pointer, <laughs> but we'll give it up. We'll give it a go. We'll, 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 we'll time box it. We, yes. we, usually, we usually try and cover up podcast about 30, 40 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Let's, well, let's, see see we go. let's do our best. So this is an organisation where there is an opinion. I'm, I'm, I'm reading into this that by influencers or, or higher ups, decision makers, that scope can be fixed and, and, that, and whatever plan the teams come up with is the plan that cannot be wrong. How do you how do you how do you work with that? What do you do? Well, what's the is the aim to mitigate? That wasn't your question, but I'm, oh, I'm speculating. It depends. But is the aim to, in some respects, mitigate? complete disaster okay because in my from how you've read that my response is that's a disaster mm. waiting to happen how can we mitigate or at least reduce the impact of it so I'll, I'll um, my first instinct whenever I'm asked those kinds of questions is, is to just clarify something that people are surprised by and even though I know this isn't what they mean it's a point worth making so you can have an agile project where a scope is fixed oh absolutely um, so or time is fixed or time is fixed absolutely but most people assume that it's you can't fix scope but what, what they really mean by that is you can't fix scope and fix time yes um, so I think I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what Robin means but it's worth clarifying that it is possible for, for a product owner or somebody a customer or someone, a manager to come along and say, right, I know, I've done my research, I know these are the features that are needed in this product. We can't release without all of these features in, in version one. Yeah. How long, asking the team, how long, how many sprints, how many iterations do you think it will take us to get that functionality? So the scope is fixed, Yeah. you tell me how long it's going to take. That, you can still have an agile project that way, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But let's work on the assumption that he's he's depicting a, a, an organisation who are, who are trying to fix the scope and the time. Yeah. So by saying you need to have this done by this date, or else, or else. Yeah. 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 Um, and it, yeah. is there? Well, the thing I, the other thing we haven't talked about yet is the whole is the people is the is the team aspect of it, right? So. Okay doesn't kind of Robin doesn't say in his question there about who's working this or how many do they work this. Now I know before anyone jumps down my throat, including you Jeff, I'm not suggesting here more people equals more productivity. No. I'm not but we could as again a, a mitigation is, is by look at if we were to have two scrum teams working on this rather than one. Yeah. That might again mitigate total failure. Yeah. So if we get to a certain point this is where we need to be by sprint three. If we're not here, we need to bring another team in line and we at least have a strategy around scaling up people, hmm. which has happened in Nokia to a degree. 
we had to basically club together two teams to get one piece of work finished. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't guarantee success, but then nothing does. No, and, it, and, and I know why you, you put that caveat in there to start with, because adding more people generally slows us down before we can speed up. But if well, there the is, yeah, the overhead's increased. If there is enough time to take that short-term hit, you can get that medium to long-term boost that might actually help you increase the overall velocity of the project to meet, meet that. But obviously it has an impact on costs as well. Yeah. Um, and complexity. Yeah. But it, yes, it's possible. It's possible. Is it fair? Here's a, here's a, here's a suggestion. Um, more hours, right? So again, this is not something I necessarily condone, but if we're suggesting uh, we're up against it here, um, we need more, we need to get more done. Can we stretch everyone's working day by two hours? I mean, obviously it's possible. I mean, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of the, the saying, almost anything is possible, but everything has consequences. Oh, of course. And to me, one of those consequences would be that would certainly run the risk of it not being an agile project. Because for me, that would compromise one of the agile principles of sustainable tasks. I agree, I agree. But having said that, I know many teams whose definition of sustainable pace would include 10 hour days. Yeah. And they could sustain that. And I think that's almost. You can go to some areas of the UK. We are in London. We are. We are in London. And I think generally, I mean, don't quote me on this, there's no data to back this up, but of the companies I've spoken to, uh, and my wife used to work in the city, she, she would be expected to do 10 hour days. It's just, it's just kind of what. The normal working hours, I think, in the city of London, from my own wife's experience, were longer than what I would work in Bristol for BT. It's yeah. just I, that wasn't even that was contractual. That was just something that became socially expected. Um, was that sustainable for her? I think at the time, yes. Why? What made it sustainable? Because the working conditions. The pay, pay, I mean, so pay isn't always the right, uh, you know, the right reward or the right um, measure. But I think she was being paid more than I was. So in her mind, or in my mind, should she be working harder for a better pay grade? Okay. So um, they bought that time from you. Yeah, they've got their pound of flesh to a degree. But um, I think that has she. I think she burnt out within two years. Okay. Two to three years she worked in London at that pace. And sustainable is a fluffy definition, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, so yeah. The fact that she lasted two years, is that sustainable? The Agile well, Manifesto yeah. talks about indefinitely, doesn't it? Yeah. So finding a pace that you can continue yeah. indefinitely. Um, for me, one of the biggest effects of whether a pace is sustainable or not is how engaging the work is. So if I'm working on a piece of work or a project or for a customer or, or delivering a product for certain types of users, that I actually empathise with and I can connect with That's true. and I find worthwhile, then actually I can I can tolerate uh, a harder, longer, 
faster pace. And you'd probably sacrifice more if you if you believed it was a something you felt strongly about. You were you were bought into the whole idea of it. And my teammates. If I if I cared a lot about my team and I wanted my team to be successful, that's true. And I enjoyed working with the people that I was working with. Work wouldn't be a chore. It would be fun, yeah. and you can fun is more sustainable than than chores. Yes. Right. Now I'm not suggesting that. You know, so Robin's question was what what coaching techniques or, or scrum yes. master techniques. I'm not about necessarily manipulating the environment to to get more out of your team. But if if that was a situation that was fairly non-negotiable, then how could we change the environment to make what might be an unsustainable pace more sustainable. naturally sustainable? Yeah, true. But again, it's because that's um, you read a lot about the Google way, don't we? In terms of Google are very good at providing an environment and, and food and free lunches yeah. and any food you don't have to pay for that anything you want you go back and then we'll do your washing we'll do your laundry for you while while you work we will have someone around your house to collect your parcels exactly so yeah. it's like we can dog walkers give you perks to make to get you more hours out of your day but um, is that manipulation is, is that you know going beyond stretching people too far I don't know people but then why why do people still go and work for Google because well I've never worked there <laughs> but from what I read it's because it's a great it's a challenging place to be it's you know you get to work with great people on interesting projects um, and there is an argument that people made that, 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 that they're looked after there yeah that means a lot yeah but it's also a great thing to have in your CV isn't it I think and so sustainable for a period to achieve an objective or something yeah that's um yeah, is that as a coach so, so go back to Robin's question as a coach should your kind of strategy be now's the time to dig in and get and, 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 and get you know knuckle down and get the job done is that is that I mean is that a coach's responsibility to motivate to push. let's look at it as scrum master first because I think that's an easier well, one yeah because that's not strictly it's a coach with an agenda scrum master. yeah let's let's view it that way so from a scrum master's perspective I'm always of the opinion that you know, they've got to be thinking internally and externally they've got to be thinking tactically and strategically the art of the possible but always changing what's possible and so in the short term if this is a if this is a situation if this is how it is yeah, for whatever reason then how can we make the best of this yeah. and I think that's that's a part of their job description and it's it's a, a mindset that I think scrum masters need to encourage throughout the organization yeah, we are in this we are all on the same team we are all trying to achieve the same goals we want our company to be successful so yeah, we do we do put put a put our shift in but Equally, a huge part of that is that role is looking at well, what changing the levers that are influencing those less than optimal situations. So, how have we got ourselves into this situation yeah. where we are running these risks, where we are burning the candle at both ends, where we are you know, eating up the goodwill of our employees because we can't go on doing that? Um, 
similar to the, the coaching techniques would be, well, how can we get everybody working towards a common goal? But also the coaching techniques would then also be looking at, well, influencing the people whose, whose decisions have got us into this situation. Yeah. It's both angles, isn't it? And some, a lot of scrum masters say, will say to me, oh, I can't, you know, I wish I wish my, wish my boss was here, would hear you say that. You know, yeah. I wish my boss would listen to me. I have, I've got no influence over the people at that level. And we've covered this on previous um, podcasts, but I think you have to be prepared to mix it up a bit sometimes. Yeah. To, to, to stand your ground. Stand your ground. Stand, stand up, up for what you believe in, stand up for your values, yeah. stand up for what you're worth. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we just, we all need a bit of a wake up call because it's very easy to just get into our own habits and just the way things happen around here. Could there be almost, uh, almost, it sounds, it sounds a bit uh, inflammatory, but almost an ultimatum with, with those people saying, look, we can probably, if we dig in now, we can probably get this done, or we're going we're gonna to work hard to get this done. But as long as we have some kind of promise that we're going to come back and review why this is happening at the end of it. Yeah. Some kind of stop on new projects, some kind of review as, a, as an organisation on how we got into this mess. Some kind of commitment from you that this won't happen again. Yeah. And I hear that phrase just this once. Exactly, yeah. A lot. It won't happen again. Yeah. yeah. And people, people have good memories for pain. Oh yeah, we remember what hurt us. Yeah, and so yeah, if, if we say, all right, I'll trust you just this once, all right, I'll do that. I'm, I'm a decent, I'm a decent person. I'm not going to kick up a fuss and just sabotage things just for the sake of it. Um, and so you say just this once, all right, yeah, I'll go with you on that. And then if it does happen again, yeah, I mean, how much, how much goodwill is there left then? Next, and not, and not just for that type of agreement, but for any kind of collaboration that requires trust. Which Agile's built on. Yeah. We've we've lost that ability to have that respectful, trusting conversation, which is needed for collaboration. Yeah. So, if, if if I was coaching somebody in that situation who is faced, you know, they feel like they're between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. And they feel I've got to get the team to go with me on this. And they think I'll I'll promise them just this once. My my coaching advice to that would be: Okay, are you aware of the consequences of, of breaking that? Is that something you can keep to? And are you prepared to, to face the consequences of perhaps not breaking that? So I wasn't suggesting that the scrum master makes the promise. No, I was, no, no, I know. Yeah, I was suggesting that the level that's made that decision, that's fixed that scope and that um, cost. For the arguments of this conversation, let's call them a product owner. It might not be the product owner in many yeah. organisations, but yeah. let's call them, use that term for this discussion. Yeah. So a product owner comes to a team and says, right, it's got to be done by this date, this yeah. amount of stuff, non-negotiable. Yes, it's going to be more than eight hours a day, but just this once, it's really important. And I can't, I can't say those words without remembering a project that, that you and I were both on many years ago. Yeah. And the customer came along and said those words, just this once. <laughs> I know you said it's going to take you that long, but it needs to be done quicker. But again, we're linking here somewhat to the, the technical debt idea, isn't it? Yeah. So with the, go, go with the metaphor of technical debt, for, for, with the credit card debt. You can take a loan. You can, you can, you could. There's a choice to, to shortcut what we're doing, yeah. get it done, take the hit, come back later and pay back the debt. Mm. 
But again, yeah, I, I think back to times when we've had that conversation with product owners in BT and said, yeah, 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 we'll come back and pay back the debt. We'll come back. Don't worry. We'll, come, we'll give you time. We'll give you space. We'll lay off in the next release. But how quickly those things get forgotten. Yeah. And look at so I'll, I'll switch the analogy then. And I know it's always a dangerous one, but um, weight management for me. So I know it's a lot harder for me to lose weight once I put it on than it is for me to to avoid putting it on in the first place. Yes. Both well, are hard. But not not just you. Most most human beings, I imagine, in that yeah. there, there are many situations where it's easy. They find strategies for losing weight that are unhealthy. But anyway, yeah. hey, let's um, not go there. No. So for me, if I it's harder for me to. So I know that it's in my interest to avoid putting that on. It's harder. I have to put a lot more effort in to cut my calories down after I put things on. So I know what my tolerance levels are. And if I go past a certain point, I know it's a long road back. Now, the only way that I know that is from experience. Yeah. It's from that physical pain of knowing that when I got to that point, I had to do a lot of exercise. And I'm lazy. Yeah. I hate exercise. So I had to put a lot of exercise in and cut down my calories to get back to a healthy weight. So now I, I know that I can have a week where I'll, I'll have a full English breakfast and, uh, uh, and, a, and a big lunch and a big dinner and yeah. drink a couple of bottles of wine and I can put on this, this, this tolerance level of extra weight and I can, I can get that off the next week relatively easily. That amount of debt. But that, but that takes discipline. It does. It does. And, set, and the only way that I've got that discipline is I know the cost to me going past that point. So what I'm trying to say there is that in a lot of organisations, they, they don't necessarily know the cost of having to pay back that technical debt. Yeah, it's an interesting, on, let's go with that. So I heard an, um, on the in the car this morning on the radio, I was listening um, to someone talking about New Year's resolutions in okay, 2017. Yeah. So people are, and the most popular New Year's resolution, which is not a surprise to most people over decades, is, oh, I need to lose weight next yeah. year, right? They had this kind of dietitian the radio and she was saying well dieting as a as a fundamentally as a concept is flawed you cannot diet sustainably okay you cannot adjust say I'm not gonna eat this I'm not gonna I'm, not, I'm gonna stop drinking I'm not, I'm not gonna eat those things so it's about changing your lifestyle to be more health, healthy so she talked about the idea of don't snack between meals your body doesn't need the extra food so just adjust your routine not to do those things yeah. um, and avoid try and have a certain amount of the food groups in each meal right so don't don't cut yourself down on eating certain things just eat the right balance of things on each meal and don't snack between them and you probably find that your body is better off and the consequence of that may well be weight loss and it's a similar thing with technical debt isn't it really that the idea is you can binge yeah. you could do that three month hit on that project get it out there you're you're taking those calories on you've got to be extremely disciplined then to to cut it back afterwards but it's probably not long term doing your company any good because no. it's not a sustainable way of of delivering projects yeah exactly so it's it's and that's not when people diet they're generally unhappy <laughs> they're generally miserable that's true that's true yeah that's true um, they moan about it. So another another interesting thing that I read about New Year is that January is the most 
December, January time is one of the most common times for people to quit their job. Is it really? Yeah. So I was reading, I think it was in the Harvard Business Review or something, so you can, there's, there's a lot of data out there now about when people change jobs. Yeah. And so to do with, you know, uh, life landmarks, so when you reach 30, 40, 50, for example, yeah, generally yeah. people take reflection and think, am I where I want to be? Yeah. Uh, and gives them the impetus to do it. It's just, it's just another day, but it's an arbitrary flag. Yeah. Um, so times of year, again, Christmas, New Year, they take that time off and think, right, what am I going to do next yeah. year? Do yeah. what I want to be. Birthdays uh, and tax years as well. Oh, really? So, okay, yeah. Tax years. Yeah. But New Year's is a big thing. And so I'm mentioning that because... I've got to be careful what I say, but at some point in these organisations, we all have to ask ourselves whether the company values match our, match own. our own values, yeah. and whether all the all the platitudes and all the, the little bits around the edges do make up for the compromises that we have to, to take and have to make. And to use your wife as an example, she could tolerate that for a while, but there came a point when she thought, you know what, I'm going to do something different. Yeah. And I know Ron Jeffries said, so, you, know, you, you keep trying to change your organisation, but eventually you either change your organisation or you change your organisation. Um, and that's ultimately the biggest market force at play driving organisational behaviour. Can they retain the people that mean something to them? And are enough good people willing to take a stand for what's right and what needs to happen for the organisational culture to change for the better? But here's, a, here's again throwing a, a little bit more controversy into that mix. So if you look beyond, like, let's say, product owner and above, let's say the decision makers, the people who are saying do this, do this, undeliver, achieve the miracle project, do they care? Do they do enough of them? I'm not saying one of them. Do enough of them care that they retain the good people over the next four years, eight years? Do they want? Do they want even want the same? We're in the software industry where technology changes on a weekly basis. Do do these people actually want the same people in that company in two, three, five, ten years' time? Or is I think there, there are some people in that company that they do want to keep. And there's probably others that they don't. Yeah, but the cost the cost of replacing people is immense. Very few people in an organisation realise how much it costs to advertise, recruit, hire. Oh, I when agree, you, yeah. when you in the include the cost of a bad hire and getting a bad hire out of the company, the cost of replacing somebody valuable with implicit tacit knowledge within your organisation is huge. And so, do product owners care? Probably not. Probably not because the organisation isn't actually tying the cost, the full costs of their decisions and their projects no. to to the decisions that they're making. It's an interesting thing, yeah. Because it's, we talk about a lot about return on investment. And I say this probably too often in my courses that we're looking at value versus cost. Mm -hmm. We, we sometimes simplify that too much. Cost, cost is an estimate for me to do that work now and maybe maintain the work for the next few months. But I don't take a, the cost of me working slavishly on it in a code base that's riddled with technical debt with a bunch of guys that I hate. There's a cost there, which is probably over and above what the cost of development actually is. Interesting. I never actually thought about it like that. Interesting. And the potential long-term cost of that person leaving the organisation to be replaced. Knowledge loss and things like that. Yeah. And the knock-on 
ripple effect that has elsewhere. Yeah, you see one good person leave, and completely unrelatedly, another good person, oh, another good person's gone. Oh, interesting. Well, the same thing happened in BT. Yeah. I know we talk a lot about BT, but brain drain. You were the first one to leave. That's fairly well known. But it was amazing how quickly other people followed when they thought, well, Jeff's gone, what's the point of me staying? I'm sure very few people thought, what's the point of me staying because Jeff's gone. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, no, if, if it makes, it, it did send out a bit of a sign at the time in BT, we won't go through the details, but you, you left. Yeah. And it kind of asked the rest of us, me included, were left thinking, well, if BT's willing to let Jeff go, what, what, what hope is there for us? What, in terms of what's the strategy? here. The strategy isn't to keep good people. We don't really care about good people. Let's let them go and work for our competitors, whatever that might be. So you do lose a little bit of faith, yeah. I think, in your company when, they, when they're frivolous about letting good people go. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, return on investment has always been a, a tricky thing for, for people to measure. But I think Scrum Masters and Agile Coaches to try and bring things back a little bit to Robin's original question. They, they will look at that kind of thing and they will think, well, what, what are the costs of what's going on here? What, taking a step back, looking at the, the sort of system level impacts and trying to track things over time as well. Return on investment is not just a, a short term thing. It's, like you said, it's, it's, it involves many, many factors and you know, products, especially if you're delivering a product into a marketplace, there's a maturity model that follows as well. Yeah. Most of the money that you make will be nine months, twelve months, two years down the line when it becomes a cash cow, uh, and you've got to you've got to measure that over the full length, and then the, the ripple impacts throughout the organisation. Uh, and often, basically, very few organisations are very good at measuring that kind of stuff, and I understand because it's very difficult to measure. But as Einstein said, not everything can be measured. Not everything that counts. Well, I sometimes think that if lot, if if there was a slowdown, if there was a a bit of breathing space after something like that happened, there'd be more time to analyse the ongoing cost of it. Yeah. So how often do we sit back and measure people's morale after 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 a go live day? Probably not because something else has already kicked off. And yeah. The next project's already started off. So how much downtime do we give people to actually reassess the cost? What was the cost of that delivery? Yeah. In people cost. Who do we lose? Who's who's more disengaged, who's disenfranchised at this point than they were before? Yeah. I've always, um, again, I'm trying desperately to try and bring this to what, what Robin was saying, but uh, actually scrum masters and coaches will find themselves trying to gather data. Data is a powerful influencer of opinion and change. Um, and one of the things that I really liked, I always feel guilty when I tell stories about BT because they're often dysfunctional stories, but it was a great place. They're just on the road, yeah. so it's okay. <laughs> There's so much good that went on there as well. And in an organization oh, yeah. such as that, so big as that, you can actually run a lot of experiments and compare and contrast. So yeah. we could you know, we could measure the velocity of a team with X number of years of combined experience against another team with the same amount of experience, but working on a uh, on more of a legacy project. And, yeah. and, and not, not in order to compare the two, but to say, well, how much is it worth us investing in reducing the technical debt to bring this legacy product down to more of a, yeah. like a Greenfield one? Um, and you know, the cost of doing that against the benefits of doing that, and we can make those decisions. That's, that's how things change. And so I, I, I regularly tell a story of, this is different but related. 
the, the product owner that wasn't the real product owner. And so they had a proxy product owner. And the Scrum Master tracking how much time was spent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, waiting for the for the proxy to find out the real information from the real product owner. Yeah. And how much how much that time wasted cost. And, and to make a business case for freeing up the real product owner. And those types of things can be a huge bonus. I'm, I generally operate on the principle that, that people want to do a good job and people don't generally make bad decisions for the hell of it. Uh, and given the right information, the right data, and the right environment, they will make a better decision. So give them the information to make a better decision. Is there a risk, just to take that, I, again, I'm, I'm being a little bit devil's advocate here, but is there a risk that therefore you could become a bit of a doom monger as a, as a scrum master? If you know that we're onto, a, we're onto a bad job here in terms of we're up against it, and you're, and I agree with you, use the data to your advantage, use, find out any way that you can make visible that this is a bad gig or it's a bad, it's a bad egg. But is there a risk there that you could demotivate the people around you by constantly looking at the negative consequences? I'm not suggesting we always need to be cheerleaders in this kind of no, and everything's always. I get what you're saying, and that's, but I think that's, that is a part of the job, and I think that's quite a nice link actually to the second part of Robin's question, which is in an organisation that considers the plan to be the plan that can't be wrong. And I think a big part of this is actually creating awareness that a wrong plan can yeah. be very, very useful. So some of the big successes we had early on were stopping bad projects. Yes. And how motivating was that for the team? Yeah, yeah. That okay, we everybody knew it was a bad project. I don't have to do it anymore. But we don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. But we can stop the death match. Yeah. And but it requires management, or you know, as we're calling them in this case, the product owner, to be quite ruthless and cut the bad projects. And the, so the positive side to that is, well, we get the greater morale, we're not just doing something for the sake of it, we're not just wasting money, throwing good money after bad, and we can use that money to focus on something that will be more valuable, more engaging, more motivating. So it's a positive thing. It's, there are very few organisations out there that I find have not enough work. Yeah. So it's more a case of which of all these things that we could do should we be doing. And if you can find out the bad ones, it gives you more space for the good ones. Yeah. Very true. Reminds me of a story. Um, very quickly, I'll tell. It's a BT story. I did some work with BT directories. I think you've probably gone by this point. Do you remember that BT directories? This is when they were still. I don't even know if they still print BT directories. I like the phone book. Yeah. Okay. So there was yeah, a still legally required to. Are they? Mm -hmm. So there's. So this was a BT directories project. We were involved as adult coaches. A couple of us in there, and a new idea came up, and we gathered. We did basically did a release plan session. So this hadn't, I think some, some work was underway, there was a little bit of research going on, but it was, we said, well, let's do some like release planning, just to get an idea of what's involved here. And it became, this is a whole day workshop. Um, uh, and it, trans, it, as we went through the day, it began, it, you got this feeling that this isn't actually, as a business proposition, this is fundamentally flawed because people started to disengage with the idea as, the, as it went along. Yeah. When we started looking at the amount of work that was required, we looked at the amount of work that other teams still had to, to finish. It quickly became apparent that if we worked on this now, we're not going to deliver this until probably 12 months' time, by which time print they've already gone to print. Yeah. Therefore, it's a bit of a, a non-runner. So, that act of, in terms of coaching techniques, that release planning 
um, events was a great way to say, you know what, it, I don't have to tell you this, you can see this, this isn't going to work out very well. A similar thing happened in BT with, um, with OneView, was the fact that we worked out one team had three years worth of, of work to do to get to, to complete this, it was, just wasn't going to work. The data didn't stack up. So I think you're right, a coach or a scrum master, your greatest weapon is, your, is the data that you can provide. And it's, if that data is staring them in the face, it's very hard not to react to it. Yeah. In BT, it was the whole share price thing. People see the share price dropping, something's got to change. And, you know, well, the data is the mirror. So we always love to talk about the coach holding up the mirror. Yeah. The data is the mirror in that example. The difficulty is, well, not the difficulty, but certainly one of the difficulties is, is being able to help them see that information without them feeling basically bad. Yeah, and, and who, how, who see that data? The manager? Yeah, whoever needs to make the decision. Yeah. It's not about, it's certainly not about sho shoving something in their face to say, look, you made the wrong decision, you made a mistake, you're wrong. Because then people just find reasons to cling on and, and justify. If it's about a personal judgment of them from others, or even on themselves, it will be harder for them to see what's in the mirror, because they won't want to see it. No. So it's got to be positioned in a non-judgmental way. But they can save face by doing something earlier. This, yeah, is, yeah. this is the thing. The early, if we, the earlier that we raise that concern, the less potential damage it might cause to the people who've made that. And so my, that positioning, like I said, there, Bob. Yes, we are. We are stopping this one. We are effectively putting our hands up and saying what we thought was a good idea actually isn't a good idea. But look how much money we're saving by finding that out now, and look what we can now take on, which is more valuable because we're stopping this. Yeah. Which is a slightly more saving face positive way of looking yeah. at it rather than, yeah, we screwed up. Because yeah. Yeah. inevitably someone will take at that, that, that level, there will be consequences to that, to whatever that, yeah. that project stopping, you know. Someone will get a stern talking to, I imagine. But I don't, I, again, I don't think, and, and I, I get from Robin's context there that that probably will happen, but that's an important part of the coach's job there, is to have you know, to have a conversation with the people that would want to do that stern talking to and saying, what, what value is that serving? Is yeah. that actually creating more of a problem that uh, people not wanting to give you the information that is actually there? Yeah, the fear, growing the fear in the, in the country. So, you know, there's, there's conversations in different angles to make sure that we are encouraging the truth to come out. Can you handle the truth? How can you help people handle the truth? Sounds like a line from A Few Good Men. Haven't seen it. Starring Jack Nicholson. And surprisingly, Jack hasn't seen it. But I think I'm going to have a... I'm going to have a... a Mary Wade, who... who apparently stole the clothes of an eight-year-old when she was 11 and became the youngest female convict transported to Australia and she served time here in the Newgate prison. Oh really? So that, I'll have that gin and tie. Which one do you fancy? The Catherine Wilson, the nurse and serial killer, last woman publicly hung in London, 1862. Yeah, why not? That sounds those? interesting. Okay, so we'll move from the side onto the gins. <laughs> I hope that was of, of some use to, uh, to Robin, first and foremost, but also to other people. Um, Give us a tweet back, Robin, to let, let us know what you think anyway. Um, to everybody out there. Cheers. Cheers.